Red-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government of the government love. The government of the government love. The government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. On Friday, September 20th, Jay and I recorded a live show at a Federal Bar Association conference in Cleveland, Ohio. It was a great event, and we loved having the opportunity to debate some issues face-to-face and before a room full of people. We were able to record it, though the room acoustics weren't ideal for that purpose. We hope you enjoy our discussion, which, given our audience, was focused on judicial issues. Finally, if you'd be interested in having us come to wherever you are to do a live show for your business, school, or organization, let us know. You can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. Well, thank you very much for having us. Uh, We are the Politics Guys, uh, and this is a... As far as we know, first of a kind uh, live podcast at a uh, federal bar association event. Um, so bear with us. Yeah, as the uh, as the liberal, I'm the guy with all the big ideas for changing things, and Jay's the one who generally is is saying why this is such a horrible idea. And so I thought we'd start with me talking about one of my many great great ideas for reforming the judiciary. In this case, the judicial selection process and confirmation process. And I'll start. I don't want to I don't want to give Jay kind of whiplash or shock him too much. So I'll maybe start with something a little bit easy. Maybe even something. Every once in a while, he agrees with me. So we'll see. I don't know. But uh, you know, in light of what uh, what happened with uh, with Mitch McConnell making up some interesting rule precedents so that he wouldn't have to confirm a Barack Obama Supreme Court justice, one of the things I suggested to Jay is I'd really like to see something. And this would this would either be in Senate procedure or would be potentially even a. Hang on, Jay. A constitutional amendment saying that the uh, Senate would have to give an up or down vote to any Supreme Court nominee within a period of six months. And Jay, I don't know how you feel about that. Now, obviously, that's not what happened sure. when it was a Democrat that Mitch McConnell had that option to do that with. But when it's a Republican, as you know, it's been a record pace of just pushing it through fast and furious. So, what make, do you think make, about making that? Making hay while the sun shines. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. No, I, and, and, and um, you know, I think we we would uh, start with the, you know, I, I always start with um, uh, Federal 78, when we're anytime we're talking about the <laughs> judiciary. And, and it, this is particularly important because I, I think that if you are um, uh, any kind, it, it's, it's, if you go back and read, like you should get up and read Federal 78 every morning, um, if you're in the, the legal world. Uh, Hamilton very much uh, saw the judicial branch as the, the weakest branch inherently, right? They didn't have the power of the sword of the executive. They didn't have the power of the purse. Um, uh, so he was, he was very big on uh, the idea of lifetime appointments. Um, but at the same time, I think also recognized the, the, the difficulty of if you have a up-down, your, your requirement to have a, a, a vote within six months, um, that does, uh, I would say, impede on the, the constitutional prerogative of the Senate, which is to uh, conf- uh, uh, <laughs> Uh, yes, well, the words I'm well, yeah. like I've stumbled over them. Um, well, whatever the word is, I don't think it impedes on it. I mean, if you take a yeah. look at the history of judicial confirmations, at least to the Supreme Court, the longest period ever between a presidential nomination and a result, whether it's a confirmation, a judge being rejected, or that or that judge withdrawing, was 125 days, and that was uh, Justice uh, Brandeis under the Wilson administration, I believe. So six months is not at all unreasonable. And to me, advised and consent doesn't mean, well, sit on it and just hope it goes away. No, advised and consent means the Senate needs to come back with some sort of a decision. And I think, frankly, that for all of his, Mitch McConnell would say he's a great defender of the Constitution and tradition. I don't think that's true at all. I think he's a great defender of getting as many Republican judges in there as possible by any means necessary. And so to me, that flies. I don't care if Mitch McConnell has Federal 78 memorized. That's not what's driving him to me, that's not certainly even what's driving the modern Republican Party and most of the Democrats, frankly. 
So, Mike, Mike, would you would you agree with me though? In, in terms of how you would want to accomplish something like that, is is there a way to do this without a constitutional amendment? Because I think I keep coming back to uh, that the Senate has that um, uh, advisory role and and uh, approval role, confirming role, um, and and to add an additional uh, layer uh, that would seem to take more than just. Senate rules or, or even even legislation. Well, you could do it in Senate rules. Of course, the Senate changed their rules. But to me, the right. deeper problem, you, you have a lot more reverence for the Constitution than I do, which is I'm not, I'm not <laughs> lining it up and throwing it away or anything. But and, well, I'm not saying that the framers weren't brilliant guys, but they were working in a very different context, an 18th century context with a very different Senate that was chosen in a very different way. And so for me to think that these institutions, these processes set up in the 18th century, that they somehow are magically going to be perfectly fit for the 21st century is, I think, just it's sort of foolish to think that that's, that's even possible. The system was designed with the idea of change, and now it seems like whenever someone suggests that, it's, you know, oh, gasp, clutch your pearls, we well, can't change the Constitution, guess, which to me is just, you know. Well, I, I mean, I don't think you can't change the Constitution, but as a practical matter, sure. it would be extremely difficult to, to change, especially on something like that would be controversial. But what would your thought be if, if what happens if the Senate uh, simply chooses not to say they, they pass the, the rule or there is uh, legislation that says you have to vote a nominee up or down within six months and they don't What's what's the penalty? Who enforces it? Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's yeah, where yeah. I think we get to the constitutional yeah. crisis. Come on, yeah. crisis, but um, crisis. The constitutional sure. issue. Yeah. Um, so that's that. I think is is where I I think you would need to have something actual amendment. I just don't see that that happening. So, but but you don't think that when when uh, Garland was nominated that we didn't in effect have a situation where the Senate just ignored its duty its advice and consent duty that what McConnell did was pretty much okay well I and I'm, I'm not well, if you ask me to comment on whether I, I agree with what he did or yeah. whether he was and this, well this is where we get into these things um, or, or whether he, he was within his authority to do that uh, I would say yes, yeah, he certainly has an authority to do that. And you and I both talked uh, as this went forward. Uh, I sort of went on the record that I thought the better way to, to, to run a railroad is to have have hearings uh, and have up or down votes. Uh, but that said, I, I don't think I don't think there is. Well, let me ask you this then: What does advise and consent mean then? Is it just like a, some? Three pretty words, and I like pretty, but they're three words. Or sure. do they have any meaning then? I mean, it's a, it's, it's an obligation on the Senate, as you point out. There's nothing. It's not like they get yanked out or anything. They're, you know, so, so is it pointless? Is this no, just not, a pointless part of the Constitution? No, not at all. I would say that that the way that uh, advice and consent worked in that case was. Uh, they did took not. they took an advisement and they did not consent. I mean, well, they didn't do anything. They didn't, even, sure. they didn't consent or not consent. Well, so but that's that's uh, uh, again as, as a body they uh, they did not. So uh, I think that satisfied their constitutional obligation. Oh, I think uh, you totally right. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> but what other? And again, well, like, because yeah. you are you are the academic, you've you've got the liberty to kind of come up with um, ideas that, sure. that people like me might just call nuts. Well, well but, so there are other other proposals that are out there as far as changing the judiciary that that might lower the temperature well, of. Well, maybe not nuts, but you know, obviously, something that's happened in recent years is we've seen the end of the of the filibuster for the judicial nominees. First in 2013, uh, with non supreme Court nominees, and then in 2017 when the opportunity came up to do that, uh, of course it was the same Republicans who were saying this is awful in the end of the world. When the Democrats did it in 2013, suddenly a court uh, seat on the high court opens up, and well, you know, hey, they did it, so I guess that's a that's a reasonable principle. They did it first is now what we're operating based on. But anyway, I, it seems to me that I, I kind of miss the days of the judicial filibuster. In fact, I would even go further than that. What I would like to see is sort of a, you might even call it kind of a, uh, a super filibuster for uh, Supreme Court nominees, at least, and maybe appellate court judges as well, that would require maybe even as much as a two-thirds majority, because what I see now are, are a lot more polarization in the nominations as well as on as well as well on the courts, and I think that a requirement, and yes, this would have to be another constitutional amendment would be that if you had to have two-thirds of the Senate agree 
on a nominee, that would automatically have a seriously moderating force because there are a lot of these folks that just no way they could get two-thirds. And it's not like two-thirds is a crazy number. You look back, what, Scalia got 80-something well, votes that's, or something yeah, that, like that? I think that? that's a, a point that we should make. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of times when we, we talk about what we agree on, what we, we, we don't agree on, is if you look at the way the judicial uh, uh, process, nomination process, uh, the voting of it changed uh, within the last 30 years in the sort of the post-Bork era, um, and even even the early early uh, Bork era, um, that th th there used to be a, a much larger consensus, but the stakes seems to have to have gotten higher. Um, and I, I guess I'd, I'd first seek your, why do you think that is? And then second, sure. yeah, how does this proposal lower I, those stakes? I think under Reagan, conservatives started to realize that they had an opportunity to remake the courts, and they went and did that. And certainly Robert Bork was no uh, was no wimpy centrist. This is a guy who had some pretty strong opinions and had made the mistake, I guess you'd say, if you were a conservative. And I was, at that point, I certainly was, and who came right out and said what he thought. And my God, you can't have that now. And so nobody does that anymore. But we know who these folks are and obviously groups like Heritage and the Federal uh, the, the Federal Society are hugely important and they become a major player in this that they weren't 30, 40 years ago and so what I think we've seen is a radicalization of the judiciary and I think that's been started by the right and so we're just seeing the kind of the left playing catch up on this. Hmm. Well, again, I, I, I disagree with that. But I guess the, the second question is, if that is the case, uh, if the stakes are higher, um, and, and your, your next proposal would be a essentially a constitutional filibuster, right, for, for Supreme I'd settle for a regular filibuster, yeah, honestly. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'll take what I can get. But uh, and, and not only that, it's not just the filibuster. It's, you know, uh, the blue slip process has basically been ended for circuit court judges. And that happened, again, this was a Republican thing. If you take a look at the history of blue slips, they... We they should explain it. I think our, oh, our, most of our, our live audience probably knows what blue yeah. slips are, but the, the, the regular... Go right ahead. Yeah, please stuff. do. Uh, that it was the tradition uh, that uh, any senator from a state in which a uh, uh, judge was nominated uh, could put in what was called a blue slip, essentially sort of being their veto of that senator from that, their state. Now, the, the history on that, Mike, is, is interesting because it goes back to a time when uh, everyone really knew each other pretty well, yeah. and, and if you were the senator from the state, you likely knew all the judges in your state very well, uh, and if someone were a nominee and you had some sort of inside information typically about bad character in those days, uh, that's what would be the, the uh, reason for a blue slip, as opposed to uh, things that are now more uh, ideological mm -hmm. blue slips. Um, but I'd agree with you. I, I, I think that's well, I think the history is interesting because in, in the in the early 2000s, when the Republicans had the majority in the Senate, Bill Frist, who was majority leader at the, at the time, decided, you know what, we don't really need the blue slip process. And then in 2008, Harry Reid becomes, I believe, the majority leader. And all, then we have blue slips. And then now in 2018, Mitch McConnell says, you know what, this is really kind of getting in the way a little bit, at least. So we can't have that. And so we're going to remove it again. So again, it strikes me as sort of deeply ironic that supposedly what used to be the party of tradition, and this is in part why I'm, you know, one of the many reasons I'm no longer a Republican, because I feel the party has drifted significantly from its roots, has basically become the party of, of radical right political expediency, and so we'll do what we can to put as many of these judges yeah. in, and if a couple of traditions have to go by the boards, you know what, that's fine, because honestly, people don't even know what a blue slip is, and they're not even going to care. You're not, you're not including me in that. No, you care. <laughs> yeah, you care deeply. I know. But, but no, so I think that's, you know, in getting to that, I mean, if you take a look at the record, Mitch McConnell has been incredibly successful. Right now, uh, I just looked this morning, 24% uh, uh, of all appellate court judges are now Donald Trump appointees. That's an amazing record in three years. Nobody going back two generations is even close to that number. I mean, Reagan was, I think, second at like 14% at this point in his term. And so, hey, the strategy of just saying, let's do whatever it takes has worked. And if, you know, and if for folks who voted for Donald Trump to remake the, the judiciary, that's been a big win for them. So, and if that's what you care about, and if that's what matters, and you, you don't mind trampling on tradition, well, 
good for you. I'll, I'll trap on traditional a little bit. I mean, yeah. push, push <laughs> like back. Mitch. Yeah, no, but but pushing back though, a lot of those appointments, uh, some of it is is a demographic issue. It's a number of the appointments that happened to have come open during that time. Now, you would you would argue, I imagine, that it's because uh, other appointments could have been made earlier but were held back or, or pent up because of uh, foot dragging uh, by the nefarious Mitch McConnell. Um, but but uh, that aside, I mean, from a, a more fundamental uh, democracy question, I mean, wouldn't wouldn't you uh, agree that listen, this is the president. Here's a vacancy. He's got the the right to fill it with whom he who he sees fit. Um, and and I guess what what how would you address that if we want to get more to less ideologically more less more American uh, yeah. selection? I, I think I think I'd make a distinction and. This is something Jay and I have talked about a lot in the past, and my general feeling on presidential appointments is the president does get to choose. It should be, unless the person is incredibly unqualified, uh, for at least executive branch appointments that aren't the court, because the court's special. These are lifetime appointments. These are people who are going to be in their jobs for, what, 30, 40 years, even more? Certainly, that's why a lot of people in 2016 held their noses and voted for Trump, because they knew that there'd be this opportunity to remake the courts. And that's why I think judicial appointments have to be treated differently. And that's why I think the, the Senate has a special role in this. And I think that they're they're not taking that role seriously. They're just trying to jam through as many of their people as possible. And I think that makes a mockery of, of the tradition in the process. So well, one, one more uh, point before we move off of reforming the judicial process. Yes. Uh, well, or the appointment process. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that is, you, uh, you and I have talked about this We've got another idea that it's not just yours, but uh, others uh, regarding how many justices uh, a president will get to appoint, yeah. and whether the yeah. automatic appointment. And and we should note, obviously, the, uh, the Supreme Court has there's no constitutional rule that it be set at nine. Uh, that is that is statutory. Uh, that said, it's it's been that way since, since 1866. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so well, I, I take it back. In 18, 1863, there were ten, which was weird. It was yeah. a weird. It was a weird year. Um, but uh, nine in, in uh, '66, and ever since then, um, the last time this was tried to make a change of that would have would have been during the Roosevelt administration, 1937, the uh, Judicial Procedures Reform Bill, uh, which was you know the help the old guys do their yeah. job kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Which yeah. I, I just wanted to, to note. This is as you as you criticize uh, uh, Senator McCarthy. Back in back in those days, when FDR was trying to get more uh, judges through, um, Senate Judiciary Committee uh, uh, Chairman Henry Ashurst said that the motto of the committee, and he was a Democrat like FDR, was uh, "No haste, no hurry, no waste, no worry." Ooh, very nice. So I wish I wish we could get very back rhyming, to those, you know, yeah, back to rhyming mottos for, <laughs> for judiciary committees. Yeah, um, but I, I guess. You know, there there have been uh, some folks. Uh, Jonathan Turley, for one, has suggested the court ought to be 19 uh, members. Uh, that seems to be a good number. Others have suggested <laughs> as big as 27. Um, and I know you have a proposal that's, I do. that's sort of like a hybrid of, of that that we've talked yeah. about before. You're actually writing a book about it. Yeah. I was I was writing. Least, I was at least a chapter. Right, yeah, I exactly. was in the book. I was on the book uh, with you, and then you you fired me from the yeah, book. Just like yeah, you yeah. <laughs> for the guy across the hall. But, yeah, but yeah, but yeah. Well, well, basically, uh, the the bare bones of my proposal is that essentially every president every president would get at least one Supreme Court pick per term, and this would be made right after the midterm election, so not after the January where the president comes into office. Though that president wouldn't get a pick if he or she has made a pick on, for the Supreme Court within the previous twelve months, and so I think this would do a number of good things. Number one, it would sure it would ensure sort of regular not so much rotation because the size of the court would grow certainly over time, though probably not all that much really. It certainly wouldn't be, was it nineteen or something like that, one of those things, you know, probably not. But uh, but also it would mean that we wouldn't have these situations of just kind of waiting for someone to die or hoping someone retires. And so you would know that whenever you voted in a president, that president would get at least one Supreme Court 
pick per term. And I think that would, the two big things, it would, number one, it would lower the stakes in a way, and number two, it would ensure more of that kind of, uh, more of that turnover and relevance and that sort of thing. And that's, I think those are two very good goals. And I don't really see a big downside, but I know well, you do more than I, I, I do. I do say some downsides, although I, I want to say that uh, I, have, I agree with the idea that part of the problem that, that we see with Supreme Court um, appointments, and particularly the Merrick Garland uh, uh, issue, was that there's a certain randomness to it that, that yeah. just seems unfair and just seems wrong. Is this any way to run, run a republic that this uh, this justice and the, the fate of the law may change because, uh, you know, Justice Scalia happened to pass away uh, eight, nine months at a different time? Um, you know, the same might be, be said when, when people take retirement. But it's one of these, uh, and, and there also are differences in uh, when the Constitution was written about uh, people's life expectancies and how long they would live, and there was there was actually sort of a, the idea of you'd probably be yeah. replacing people more often um, yeah. because of that than, than you are these days. And I should point out that actually that argument was an argument that not just you made, but at one point, at that point, he was just plain old attorney, John Roberts, early on in his career, who made a, a similar argument, in fact, argued for judicial term limits, talking about the value of turnover and justices getting out of touch and so forth. I have a funny feeling that if you ask Chief Justice John Roberts, he might have said that his uh, feelings on this have his position has evolved or matured or something like that. But I'm a little more of a fan of the uh, Reagan administration attorney John Roberts, who maybe was a little more open to these sort of things. But I shouldn't put words in John Roberts' mouth. Sure. I don't know. No, well, I, and I guess the, the the issues that I would see with with your plan uh, would be really the administrative ones, as as the court would continue to grow and people could you would have this this weird shifting number of judges. Um, and uh, it, it would, would lend some, some uncertainty to the law that I think would also sort of undermine that legitimacy that we're trying to get, right? We're trying to, we're trying to uh, get rid of the um, uh, sense that there is a randomness because less randomness needs, needs more legitimacy. Um, but at the same time, uh, the, the idea that, that uh, each president gets a, a Supreme Court pick, one, it's not in the Constitution, it would seem to empower the executive more than, than what the founders intended. Um, and, and second, uh, again, it adds to that sort of uh, fluctuating, you still have the same problem, right? The numbers are different, but you still have the problem of who's dropping off, uh, either either figuratively uh, in retirement or literally. So, right. Yeah, I think I you see a lot more of the value in the stability, and I see a lot more value of the kind of relevance and the you might call it the fairness issue. I don't know, but uh, but that that's not surprising given where we are in the political spectrum with that. You know. So, all right. Well, moving on. We had the other topic we're going to, to talk about on today's show. And again, this is our special live from the. Uh, Federal Bar Association, uh, Northern District in uh, Cleveland, Ohio, um, is administrative law. And it's been a big year administrative law-wise, um, not not simply, but because uh, Judge Gorsuch, this is perhaps one of his biggest issues, and we had a couple of big cases uh, come down. So I don't know if you want me to lead off or you you to lead off on our... our uh, uh, You're probably better at the whole facts sure, of the case thing than I am, you know, so I just guess, but... Well, I, you know, I guess I think we'll start with this audience is, is generally has the understanding of what the uh, Administrative Procedures Act is, how it works, and that is uh, that a, agencies uh, can make their own rules um, and subject to a certain procedure. There's a public comment period. They have to be uh, approved eventually. Um, uh, but there is there is some delegation of congressional authority, and it's permissible uh, under the APA. Um, but there's been growing skepticism, particularly from, from Gorsuch, that uh, when courts look at uh, either rules or how uh, administrative agencies interpret statutes, um, you know, the, the, the law has what's called, there are two doctrines, one, the, the Chevron uh, doctrine from um, uh, the, the Chevron uh, uh, case back in 1974, which says that agencies um, uh, can have, have broad latitude, well, a lot of deference, of course, will give deference when they're interpreting statutes relating to their expertise. Uh, and then there's sort of the redheaded stepchild of that, which is uh, our uh, deference, um, which came out of the um, uh, our versus uh, uh, de deferring. Um, I'm sorry, uh, our versus who was the other guy? 
that other guy. I forget his name. You know, I'm trying to think who I'll him. Up. Um, but the hour deference, there's there's a difference in that it relates to an agency interpreting its own rules. And it was a big hour deference case that came before the court this year was uh, Kaiser versus Wilkie, uh, which involved a, a, a veteran who was seeking benefits for PTSD. Um, he had been turned down by the Veterans Administration a number of times based on, on their eligibility rules. Uh, he sued. And interestingly, there was a, a, a split in here where the, the court, uh, particularly Justice Kagan, who wrote the opinion, uh, upheld our deference but cut it back some. So, I mean, I, let's, if you want to talk about uh, sort of your, I guess the the, the view from the, the left on on where we fall on on judicial deference to administrative decisions because this is something we often agree on a lot of times. Yes, yeah. yeah. Uh, even though well, it's a right left thing. Uh, yeah, we and we we actually do a lot. And there's there's one case in, in particular actually that's coming up in, in the courts next term. It's uh, Department of Homeland Security versus Regents of the University of California, and it's the case on uh, on DACA where the Trump administration uh, decided. Well, you know, DACA is actually unconstitutional, so we're just going to stop it without going through the Administrative Procedures Act because we don't need to because we don't feel that that was legally done in the first place. And also, by the way, courts, you're not allowed to even rule on this, essentially. And, and this hits on, I think, three main issues that we talk about a lot on the podcast, which why it kind of amazes me that we actually have an audience, but uh, uh, when we're talking about administrative law type issues, you know, but executive overreach, which is something Jay and I tend to agree on a lot. Number two, executive... We're against it. Yeah, yeah, we're against it. Uh, number two, excessive congressional, uh, congressional delegation of power. We believe that the non-delegation doctrine should actually mean something, in which case, generally speaking, we don't think it does anymore. And third, and this really sticks in my craw, and Jay, you too, I know, um, people deciding on the constitutionality of something based on whether they like it or not. You know, I like this, it must be constitutionally okay, or, or I don't like this, and it's obviously unconstitutional. I really think this case kind of hits on all of these things, because I'm a big fan of DACA as a policy. I think it would be a great thing if it were passed by Congress, but from the beginning, I said to Jay, you know, I think the Obama administration overreached in doing this and just because I think it's a good idea doesn't mean I think it's constitutionally permissible for the executive to just go ahead and you know, have this kind of discretion and so I find myself in a weird position here I'm totally against the Trump administration stopping DACA but I, I damn it I agree with their rationale which frustrates the heck out of me but it, it seems to me that yeah it's kind of presumptively unconstitutional what the Obama administration did and it's totally reasonable for the Attorney General to say hey we have reasonable grounds to say this is not okay and to stop doing it and so while I, I'm not crazy about that result I kind of forced into it by my understanding of, of what the law and the separation of powers uh, uh, you know, uh, entail in and this case. I think we should, we should point out, I mean, those regulations, those, but that's that's sort of one of the, the keys of, of what we try to do on uh, on this show is that there are times when uh, the the result we get, and we understand that it is not necessarily intellectually consistent with yeah. with uh, you know uh, our, our our positions, and I think that's that's important, and that's the sort of thing that that uh, I think you and I both try to highlight. Uh, is that you can uh, agree with a policy, uh, but not necessarily, or disagree yeah. with the policy, but not agree how you disagree how you get there, um, and that sort of goes to a lot of these these deference yeah. questions. Um, but you, you know, yeah, and the thing with this, it, it bugs me in two ways, because either way what the Obama administration did isn't okay because either they overstepped, in which case it's the, the executive exceeding its its authority, or if that's actually authorized under the Immigration and Naturalization Act, well, then that violates the non-delegation doctrine. So I can't see any way that this policy result that I love is okay. And I've tried, believe me, I've tried, but as far as I can tell, it's just not there, and that's, that's a real bummer. Sometimes, sometimes the Constitution can be incredibly inconvenient you know, but there you go. Well, and speaking of the non-delegation doctrine, yeah. that's that's another There's case we want to yeah we yeah. want to highlight, um, uh, and that's the Gundy versus U.S., which in this case had to do with uh, sex offender registry notification. Um, the statute deferred that to the attorney general to make some decisions as to. 
for people who had committed crimes prior to the statute, uh, what their when when the the um, uh, requirements would kick in, when these changes would be, and the way the language read was, well, the attorney general can make those changes when feasible. Uh, and this came, this went to a, a 4-4 decision. This is because before Justice Kavanaugh was seated. Um, but again, again, it was a Kagan-Gorsuch uh, situation where uh, Justice Kagan wrote the, the majority opinion, uh, and Gorsuch wrote a 33-page uh, dissent um, uh, talking about the uh, this this uh, doctrine of, of delegation. And Judge Judge Lito uh, agreed with uh, Justice Kagan in the. Uh, Result, but indicated that he believed there were more votes for re- revigorating the um, uh, delegation doctrine. He would be for it. So, and I guess I, I'd ask you, as 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 the liberal, then does does that sort of then that well, comports? It's well, we're, we're we're not so different. I guess is my well. You know, I think there are a lot of conservatives who are conveniently for the non-delegation doctrine because they see it as sort of a stealth way to get government to do less in a way, you know, because it's a stealth way. Well, well, it's kind of stealthy because they're saying, well, Congress should, you know, should be more specific on this, knowing full well that that's simply not possible given the nature of society and what we're asking of agencies and laws. And so it basically is a sort of a de facto way of having Congress do less and having less government. Hey, it's a brilliant strategy. And I salute them for slipping one by a lot of people, you know, but so, so in a way though, I still, I understand it if I think it's honestly arrived at, which okay. certainly you are, I you know. But that. then there are people like Ben Sass, who a couple of years ago wrote a wrote a great stirring stirring editorial, which uh, in the in the Wall Street Journal about how Congress is in effect politicizing the courts because they're delegating too much authority, and then courts have to take on this much more political role to decide what these vague things mean. And yeah, I agree with that, but it sure is convenient that he's making that argument and. Given who Ben Sass is and what I think of him, but that's a whole other story, so I won't go there. Well, but, but we would agree on the, the basic principle, though, that that you sometimes have concerns, as as yeah. I do, uh, with uh, having a lot of these decisions made by people who are not accountable, not directly accountable, certainly to the voters. And there's there's an interest in having that, and that's I think the position that that I take from the the uh, legitimate right, as you would call well, it. Uh, yeah, yeah. That, that, yeah. That, look, if you don't like a rule, you don't like a result, then you can vote the bums out. Uh, but if if we are in this administrative state where there's so much deference uh, is first of all allowed to be given to, or so much um, leeway uh, power is given to these administra- the administrative agencies, and secondly, then so much deference is given to them. Uh, you know, I think you would agree with me that. Telling Congress to do their job well, is, is maybe the better the better republic. We get a better republic out of that, right? Well, I feel that the court sometimes very uh, is very selective in what it, how it uses its political doctrine uh, question. What is what is a political question? You know, certainly they said that gerrymandering is a political gerrymandering, partisan gerrymandering. Sorry, is a political question, and this to me seems like sort of a political question because honestly, I would rather not have say unelected lifetime judges deciding on what a statute means or how it should be interpreted, rather than people in these agencies or or members of Congress. And so, to me, sometimes the decision is shifted over actually into the judiciary, which I would say is the least accountable of all. And maybe the proper thing for the judiciary to say is just to say, we're going to wash our hands of this, and hey, Congress, do your job, but we're not getting involved, because if anything's a political question, this is a political question. And I don't see the conservative court doing that. No, that, that that could well be, and I, again, that's a that's a, a, a different perspective, I guess, on uh, the accountability part of it. So, moving forward, looking looking forward, uh, the new Supreme Court ca- uh, 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 term starts next month, and I've got sort of my favorite cases that I'm I'm watching and looking at. And how about you? I, I mentioned I mentioned my favorite one already. You yeah. know, the uh, the DACA case. I'll be interested in see where, where that comes down. But that's that's the big one I'm watching. Well, uh, to me, one of the, the more interesting ones, and again, this goes to the same uh, administrative uh, sort of sort of law uh, delegation issues that we're talking about, is Weyerhaeuser versus U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, um, which is about frogs. Uh, it's about frogs who live in Mississippi, um, but maybe they might like to live in Louisiana. Uh, and in this case, a, a, a landowner in Louisiana, the Weyerhaeuser company, who uh, uh, 
has forests that cuts down to, to make paper, um, uh, has run afoul of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service because uh, they have designated uh, part of this land in Louisiana as uh, habitable for the uh, this, this type of frog. Now, the frog doesn't live there now, may have lived there sometime in the past. Um, but uh, do what? What would be, I guess, your your position? And I understand you're not a lawyer, but to argue just the policy. That never stops the me. Policy I, you know, of, forth, you know. of, uh, of arguing that uh, this, you know, designation is critical habitat yeah. designation, which is, uh, you know, what it's called under the Endangered Species Act, uh, ought to be uh, enforced even even where the species doesn't live there, and the habitat would actually have to be altered to make it amenable to the frogs. Well, I, I guess my, my first feeling on this is oftentimes it seems like you know, conservatives want to set up a false choice. It's either jobs or frogs, no, that sort of thing. Well, you want to save the frogs or destroy frogs. the economy, that sort of thing. I, I mean, you, you don't do that to the extent that a lot of conservatives do, and I appreciate that, Jay. But but in this case, uh, you know, I think it's it's a little more of a, of a, of a fuzzy issue, certainly, and I, I don't really know how I feel about this, but I guess more generally, I just feel that how this is generally, you know, uh, presented is essentially we have these we have these liberals who don't care about the economy want to wreck it basically for the sake of the speckle-headed whatever or the you know three-toed sloth or this little frog or something right. like that and so I think that simplify oversimplifies the issue in a way that doesn't necessarily in fact is designed to stop the debate and not actually get people to think about the issues all right so that's that's a that's a yeah. fair response I think my other my other well there's uh, two cases are going to probably come up together. Uh, Altered Express versus uh, Zarda and uh, Boschek versus Clay. And this is it raises the interesting issue of um, uh, essentially it's, it's sort of a, a uh, successor, if you will, um, to same-sex marriage. And this is does the uh, Civil Rights Act, uh, where, which prohibits discrimination on the basis of sex, apply to sexual orientation as well? And this is one of those cases where I, I will go on the record, and often I say, look, um, whatever I say doesn't really matter. I'm here often, like as a lawyer, to, to argue a position, right, to put the argument out there and let people think about it. Um, my personal opinion doesn't much matter. But in this case, my personal opinion would be, uh, listen, I think people ought to have a protection uh, based on, uh, you know, depending on their, their sexual orientation. They shouldn't be fired because of that. Um, but I would also uh, fight you to death, Mike. Maybe not to the death, but at least you know, that'd be a good show. If the video, I don't know. You know there'd be some pushing and shoving um, to the extent that uh, if we're going to do that, it ought to be Congress that does it, or better yet, in my, my view, state legislatures that do it, and not and not the court reading it into mm. a pre uh, pre existing act. See, and and if everyone were you, or every conservative were more like you, I'd be okay with that. But most, I, I think you, you you have a lot of good faith. You think far too positively of some of your brethren on the right, I think. And for too many people, this, well, Congress should do it, or the state, yeah, I agree that that confers greater legitimacy on it. But in too many cases, that's just an excuse to stonewall to the point where we want to deny these people these rights, and I believe they're fundamental rights, as long as we possibly can for whatever reasons we might have. And so, yeah, if, if all conservatives were like you, I totally be for that position, but they aren't, so I'm not. Okay. <laughs> See, I do, what, I do what I can. I do what I can to meet you. Have. Um, any, any others that, that would be not, my mother was on, on my list was also the DACA case. Um, uh, but one more that I think is, is fascinating that I think I, I want to watch uh, is uh, Kelly versus U.S. And, and this involves uh, Chris Christie and the Bridgegate controversy. And the weird question that it's going to ask the court is, uh, can a, a public official uh, essentially be... Uh, can he be convicted of defrauding uh, the state if he takes an action that he takes for some ulterior motive? 
Uh, and in this example, it's it's Chris Christie, uh, the administ well, the administration, uh, not necessarily yeah. him. No, he himself. wasn't involved yeah. in any way. No, but no, no. Yes, uh, Kelly, uh, <laughs> who was the uh, uh, Department of Transportation person, shut down a highway uh, ostensibly because while well, it needed repairs, needed shut down. Uh, then other uh, facts of service that suggested it might have been political payback to a certain municipality. Um, but I think that's that's a fascinating question of to what extent do we get into motives of of political actors if the if the action is legitimate yeah. uh, if they're empowered to do that does their motive matter and and we could actually bring yeah. this into it I didn't want to bring the, the whole big you know set off the bomb here but 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 to the uh, uh, Comey and you were going yeah I mean I sort of uh, yeah. so often we get talked you know and, and this isn't uh, we're trying to focus more on judicial uh, questions here but but, but, but it's the same thing of, yeah, of is, if you you have the, the authority to fire someone and retake an action does it matter if you do it for uh, a bad reason or or maybe not the reason you say yeah I mean and you and I I think are going to largely agree on this I get real uncomfortable when the court starts you know splunking around in there trying to figure out motives and so forth and so uh, I mean I think that's if you're an elected official then uh, or you know in some way you're accountable to the people then then I don't want the courts really kind of getting into motives unless it's a really egregious case I think so to me that uh, I get a little uncomfortable with that with the courts having that much power to decide on motives so if we're if we're talking now and again this is always the, the fun part of also predictions uh, of these cases we've talked about are you willing to uh, go on the record on any oh I don't have a clue <laughs> but you know I, no, I, I really I really I really don't know what what what's gonna happen but I'd be happy to hold you to some predictions no I, I, will, <laughs> I will say I think Kelly US I think um, the, the court will uh, find uh, by by at least uh, uh, with at least six or seven members uh, saying no we don't want to that's something not not something the courts ought to delve into and I think you can make distinctions sometimes if, well, if the motive is a illegal motive for example uh, if it was to obstruct justice you know in that case then yes that might be a different case as opposed to uh, I'm doing this because it really needs to be done or, or it's also just politically expedient and, and uh, you know sticks it to one of my political uh, enemies um, well, other than that, you know what, I mean, this is the usual wrap-up for the show, but what we're going to do here, which is really the fun part, because we can engage you now, because um, it's been a weird presentation, Mike and I sort of talking to each other, and um, uh, the there you are. out there, yeah, there you are. Um, we'd love to hear from you on questions regarding uh, anything we talked about, uh, other political issues we talked about, or just the whole, the bigger meta picture of of what we're trying to do in terms of... Yeah. Uh, what are you guys seven, trying to do? Yeah, <laughs> the civil dispute. Why are you here? Again, Again, um, uh, bring these kind of discussions uh, out into the the world, and and, and hopefully, or you you are pretty animated though today, uh, more so than usual. But um, put me in front of the crowd. Yeah, exactly, it's the I, segment I, of the crowd. I spent my life trying to keep uh, your bored nineteen year olds awake, so you really kind of have to ramp it up for the most sure. part, you know. Um, but uh, uh, no, but just the the idea of. Uh, you know what we always set out to do is, is not necessarily to to win an argument, but to have a discussion. Sure, absolutely. So, and, and hopefully that's what we're doing today. But we want to hear your discussions, your questions uh, on any of these things, or just the um, the lucrative world of podcasting and how you can get in on it and anything uh, <laughs> like that. Anyone? Yes. The gerrymandering issue hasn't that created much of the divisiveness and won't continue on? The court won't address that issue. I, I think that's that's an awesome question. I, I, I would say this is something we hit on a, a, a fair amount. Gerrymandering is, yeah. is uh, gerrymandering with the idea that because I think it's it's a question of technology now. We have we have such technology that we didn't have 20, 30, 40 years ago. Um, in order to to get down to almost like a household level, this we want this this household in the district, this one out. Um, that they can draw these districts so precise, uh, and and that leads to a, a race to either the right or the left. Uh, right? You you want to be sort of the most uh, right wing candidate in certain districts, the most left wing in others, and that leads to the greater uh, uh, divisiveness that we see in Congress and and to I, th I think a lesser extent in in state legislatures. Um, but you know my position is typically. Uh, there are other ways to fix it rather than the court intervention. Um, for example, Ohio is, is one of the states that has taken some 
some action in terms of uh, giving a bipartisan commission, withdrawing the districts, uh, giving more voice there. Other states have done things uh, by a referendum, uh, again, either approving plans or, or approving some other oversight board to do that. And, and my sense is the, the founders uh, understood that um, districting was going to be political no matter what. There's no way you can get around that. Uh, and, and I think, uh, in my view, I think that the court did the right thing in saying this is a political question and we would defer back to the other remedies that, that uh, the states or the, the uh, districts might have. And the other thing I'd I point out is, is of course, that um, you know, just because districts are drawn and, and it seems to be uh, they hold, you have a certain number of people um, uh, that that map holds up for a while. There's change over time, right? I mean, uh, states states flip uh, even without without redistricting, mm-hmm. uh, and also the people who draw the districts, the state officials, uh, depending on what state you're in and how it works. Uh, again, you can flip a map based on that. So I I, I, I agree absolutely. I think the gerrymandering is a problem. Um, uh, I, I differ with what the solution is, and I, I'm hesitant to have courts in the business of drawing districts because the next thing you get then is also challenges to every every single map is always going to have challenges, and you're going to be, uh, you know, not only waging an election campaign but then litigation uh, over the, the the districts. I I disagree. Um, I, I feel that the court's business uh, sure isn't to, isn't to write laws, but the court's business is to uh, address violations of the Constitution. And when gerrymandering becomes so egregious that it's a constitutional violation, I feel the court's not doing its job by kicking it back and saying, well, I hope someone does something about it. I don't know. Um, I sort of agree with Justice, with, with uh, Justice, uh, former Justice Kennedy on this, who basically said, you know, I think this could be an issue, but we don't really have a standard. And he was right for a long time. And, you know, to pat my discipline on the back, a number of political scientists and other social scientists came up with what I think was a very good and workable standard. And uh, obviously a majority of the justices on the court didn't agree that that was... And that is, and you can walk people through that, because that is... That, it's, that's it's a, lot, a lot of it's too, math, It's basically. too complicated for me, because yeah. it's a lot of math, which yeah. is exactly but but the point is, and you can you can argue certainly. Well, is this is this standard the right standard? But the court didn't even do as much as that. They just basically said, "Oh, can't can't deal with that sort of thing." And I think that's the court just not doing its job, as opposed to just not dealing with a legitimate political question. So to me, you know, I think it's better if states deal with this certainly. I mean, my preferred method, you know, with, for in terms of legitimacy. But when there is a, what I, you know, it raises to the level of a constitutional violation, like you said, with the technology and that, and and I really think that the court missed an opportunity and really failed to do its duty in this case. Well, and, and I, I, my response, as as typical, and as you would expect this, would be which which part of the Constitution do you find that. Uh, right to, to vote for the in the district of your choice, I suppose, or have the you district know, mirror your have, to vote in the district that mirrors you know, your your uh, your that, political uh, aspirations. I mean, it's the same. That's the same conservative argument. Where do you uh, find gay that. rights in the Constitution? Yeah. It doesn't say anything about you, sex. You, you I don't. mean, that's so why I'm for you know, I, that's, uh, I, I, I think it's a bogus <laughs> argument. You know. So okay, who else? Any other questions? Yes. Don't you think that? As our nation is evolving, what used to be deemed local issues or state issues or concerns are now having national implications. Yes. Certainly in many areas of our lives, this is the case. Education, for example, used to always be that the the states decide on public education. That's no longer the case. And now with gun control, the same thing. And, and so many issues, and I think we're all uh, upset and concerned about this. Certainly, I would think liberals ought to be, as well as uh, those who are not so liberal. That the solutions that we're looking to Washington more and more and more, and I think that's a uh, almost yeah. social necessity. Yeah. But at the same time, it probably is going to have some uh, 
albatrossian consequences. I refer to you on this yeah. because you probably have more data and numbers on, on how this changed. But I think there is definitely a, a switch that now everything we see is sort of a, a federal solution first. Uh, and it could be just because of the media that we're now much more tied together as, as a country. And it's there's sort of for if you're an interest group, it's sort of one stop shopping. Uh, yeah. The idea if you can sell it to uh, Congress, that saves you the trouble of selling yeah. it to 50 uh, legislatures. But our state governments you know, with gun control are saying cities can't do it. Oh, no, you're not allowed yeah. to have yeah. any local legislation. It has to be yeah. done through the state. Yeah, the, yeah. I, my comment is I think uh, uh, people on the left have focused too much on the national level and kind of under the radar, a lot of state level politics have become dominated by conservatives and they've won a lot of, they've built up that grassroots and they've won a lot of those battles and so now liberals are playing catch up kind of across the board in a lot of state legislatures and they're making up some ground but we lost a lot of ground in the last decade and a half and we've got a lot of heavy work ahead of us. Uh, to the true question, I'd also uh, put in a plug for uh, Judge uh, Sutton's book, if you haven't read it, uh, 51 Imperfect Solutions, which talks no less about um, necessarily state legislative uh, um, actions, but the idea of, of people could bring change in uh, state courts. And, and doing this based on state constitutions, sort of one at a time, and you get more of this laboratories of democracy effect where, you, you know, one, you, you don't have a one-size-fits-all because it, it's not going to in, in a, a, a country of this size and, and diversity. Um, and, and second, to the extent some sizes, some things could be scaled up to work, you get a you get the trial run. Um, but yeah, just uh, Judge, uh, Judge Sutton has written really uh, eloquently on that. Topic. Well, one final point on that, though, though, of course, it's a lot easier for state governments to be overrun by big money and, and interest groups oftentimes are much more conservatively oriented and so a lot of times again I feel this is part of a sort of a stealth agenda if you will because it's a lot easier to exert that influence on un largely unprofessionalized state legislatures in many states and kind of to have have their have their way with these legislative bodies. I wish I, wish I was half as sneaky as you think I am. No not well, you see not you're, like I said if more conservatives were like you I'd sleep better at night. Uh, Jay, but uh, they're not, and I don't. Oh, okay. What else? Who else we got? Other questions? I think Comments, thoughts? About Deneen. It. Oh, Deneen, we're out of time? Oh, okay. One more. Anyone? We're good. Well, thank you for uh, yeah. for sitting through this. Um, <laughs> no, like I said, this is an experiment. Our first time actually trying to do a podcast from an audience and, and see how it, it plays. But hopefully, uh, what we're able to show is this is this is the kind of thing we're trying to do, uh, where we have a conversation and, and hopefully bring some some more light than just heat. We forgot uh, the most important thing. Oh, if yes. you want oh, to hear please. more, yes. uh, you can find us wherever you get your podcast. If you get your if yet you, you get podcasts, and we're the Politics Guys, or just go to politicsguys.com. We also have, as some of you know, an incredibly lively Facebook group, facebook.com slash politicsguys page, where all kinds of interesting things happen uh, all the time, especially with some of our uh, attorney members who give me all kinds of flack, and I love it. Anyway, thanks very much. We really appreciate thanks. it. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We hope you like what you heard. Listener support is what keeps the show going, and we truly appreciate it. When you become a monthly sustaining supporter of the show on Patreon, you don't just get our gratitude, you get a supporter's exclusive bonus episode each and every week. Also, supporters at various levels can get additional bonuses like Politics Guys gear and access to a special supporters-only Facebook group. To learn more about all this stuff, go to patreon.com slash politicsguys, or you can visit our website politicsguys.com slash support. Subscribing to the show also really helps, as does sharing episodes. Word of mouth is, of course, the best advertising, and we really would appreciate it if you tell folks about the show. Leaving reviews and ratings on whatever podcast app you use is also greatly appreciated. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do that at mail at politicsguys.com. There's also our Facebook page where you can message us, and we're reposting things throughout the week. It's facebook.com slash page. Finally, we're on Twitter at Politics Guys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Benji Fishman, and Andra Mask. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday.
We hope you'll join us.